Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We can talk about all these things and hold all these things lightly and that ultimately they're all just things that happen to us. They are not us. And realizing that, that like the cancer was not me, but it was of me, right? And that the piece of flesh they took out of me was not me, but it was a piece of me. And the piece, it kind of took the blip it created in my life. This whole year that really was a terrible year um, was also not of me. It was just a piece of my fabric, so to speak. And that ability to kind of back up and look at that from afar really helped because being up close and staring at it in the face wasn't helping anymore. It wasn't productive. It wasn't nourishing. It wasn't any of those things that coaches tell you your life should look like. And I didn't have a coach back then. I was just, it didn't feel good. I was just spending all this time being in the inertia of I had been sick and my life was derailed. And I got kind of bored with listening to that story. And that made me step back and go, well, how, what story can I have instead? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. McKenna, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was actually introduced to you by way of a mutual friend and unmistakable creative listener, Paige Harris, uh, who had a lot of interesting things to say about your story. And when she told me a little bit about what you're up to, all of which we'll get into, I was immediately intrigued. So it was kind of a, yeah, this is a no-brainer. But before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Absolutely. So I grew up kind of all over. Um, I spent the early part of my childhood in California and I moved to Boulder, Colorado when I was 11. And that's those two places influenced me a lot, especially living in Boulder. Boulder during that time, this was kind of the pre Boulder becoming Boulder. <laughs> it was, it was, it was in the process of its becoming. And I think that the opportunity to live in a place that was very progressive, very focused on entrepreneurship and very focused on spirituality in a very general sense really changed how I viewed what was possible. I was constantly surrounded by entrepreneurs. I was constantly surrounded by people who were seekers. And I think that created a 
seeker out of me. If you're not in a place where it's you're surrounded by people who change your view of what's possible, how would you go about changing your view of what's possible for people who are not in environments like that? Absolutely. The joy of the internet. I think that that's the beauty of things like podcasts and books and videos. There's so much rich material out there these days that you don't actually have to live in a place like Boulder to experience people who have lived in places like that or to hear stories that come out of places like that. Stories come out of places all over the world now because we have this resource where we can connect to anyone anytime and hear stories all the time. So I think even when I felt disconnected from my own communities, I spent a lot of time traveling post-college. I found that the internet was where I went for those sorts of shifts in inspiration, bursts of creativity and insights into entrepreneurship. Mm. What did you think was possible with your life and your career uh, before you were exposed to all of these models of possibility? And what did you think was possible afterwards? How did the perspective change? Absolutely. I think I spent a lot of time growing up believing I had to have somewhat of a normal career despite growing up in an entrepreneurial area. To me, normal being you pick a thing, you chase it relentlessly, you grow that thing, you make a lot of money off of it, hopefully, cross your fingers. And at some point you sell it and do it all over again. So mm -hmm. from an entrepreneurial perspective, that's the traditional model of build a business, sell it, build another one, sell it, or go really deep into one. So that was about as out of left field as I believed to be what was possible. And I think that for a long time, I just thought I would be the entrepreneurial human in an entrepreneurial environment of someone else's dream, because that was the least risky. <laughs> and and I, I grew up with a father who had made it through corporate and had done really well there. And he was always encouraging me to go that way, unless it was, you had a really cool tech idea. He, his idea of how to entrepreneur was go start a tech company uh, because that was where the money laid and where the potential for huge amount of profits were. And he had plenty of entrepreneurial interests, but he was always anchored to a corporation. And so he really encouraged that in me. And I found very quickly that that didn't work for me. Very, very, very quickly. I had the luck of moving back to Boulder after graduate school and working for a great tech startup. I wouldn't even know if we wouldn't call it a startup at that point. It was pretty well established. Working for a great tech company with great bosses. And I still found myself feeling very unfulfilled, despite the fact that my work was technically fulfilling. My coworkers were great. The, everything I did kind of fit what I was expected to do. And at the end of the day, I still felt pretty empty I was working for a financial data and tech company. So I spent a lot of time making money for people who were trying to make more money for people via banking. And it ultimately ended up feeling out of resonance for where I wanted to be. And I found that the autonomy I was given within the company was a good start, but it wasn't enough. And that my two weeks of vacation and my cute little space. It wasn't an office, but it was in an open space, even though I had my own desk and I had all the things and I had an account, an expense account and travel money and all these things. It just didn't sit right. Hmm. 
earlier you mentioned that uh, your dad sort of discouraged you from taking risks. And I wonder, how did you build your capacity for taking risks? And how did you develop a tolerance for the uncertainty that comes with a path that isn't laid out in front of you or a path where you're not just choosing from the options in front of you? Absolutely. I think that I built resilience through things unrelated to entrepreneurship. I, I built risks initially. I learned risks initially about through being a human that was a lot. And when I when I say that being a human that was a lot, what I really mean is I, I carried a lot of space. I'm very tall for a woman. I'm very tall for anyone, but I'm very tall for a woman. I'm six foot one. I'm relatively opinionated, if not very opinionated, somewhere on the relatively very scale. And I always was constantly forging my own paths by entrepreneuring within schools. So in high school, I was starting organizations. In middle school, I was starting uh, nonprofits that did work with um, homeless youth. I was constantly trying to find inroads. And so I managed my risk lightly, meaning that ultimately, yes, there was a risk involved, but I always had something to fall back on. And I built my resilience that way. It'd be the way that a a trapeze artist starts with a huge net underneath them and over time takes that net away. And I did that constantly and then found that I had a pretty good resilience for the risk. And the fear of falling was no longer as appealing as the fear of not flying. And I found that I had built all of this capacity to manage the potential falling. And then I found that I could truly manage whatever was being thrown at me, no matter what. So that ability to to start things, to initiate and to begin uh, this sort of bias towards action that you seem to possess, is that something that you were born with? Is that something that's always been there? Or is it something that developed over time? And is that something that other people can develop? If so, how? I would say that I both had it innately and developed it. And I think that I was wired to leap, but not always. I was frequently encouraged to leap, but I wasn't, it wasn't necessarily part of my innate way of being. And that the constant realization of taking those risks, leaping, discovering that it didn't kill me (laughs) and end me with bro end up with broken bones and was something that I could really manage well was something I built over time and very deliberately. And I don't think I realized it was deliberate at the time, but when I look back, I can see that everything I was doing was, I was pretty aware of the fact that I was testing things to see if they would stick and to see if I could keep moving through those tensions and that constant fear as someone who works in a lot of different industries and has started a lot of different businesses and manages multiple businesses, I I find that the willingness to be present and do things intentionally has been really helpful for me to build that capacity and to view it more as an inevitability that I might 
slip a little bit here and there, but viewing it as something that I can manage versus something that I'm terrified of. And I wouldn't say that I don't still make mistakes. I, I do make mistakes. I make mistakes daily sometimes. And I am always looking for the next place I can pay attention to the clues that are telling me go this way. And I think that that awareness of the clues and that awareness of what's possible was really what helped me go from being relatively narrow in focus to being deliberately broad in focus, but in a way that wasn't detrimental to my businesses or my well-being or the people that I surrounded myself with. So I think that that, that quality of careful attention and intention of where can I build that capacity to leap and take action became a core part of my being. And I truly think that anybody can build it, even if that's that their natural capacity. I think some of us do have it more innately that we're just kind of ready. But honestly, I, I think I had so, just as much fear as almost anyone five to 10 years ago. And now I can take action pretty quickly without the fear and it's more comes from a place of curiosity rather than fear, because I'm aware that even if it doesn't work and it doesn't land and it doesn't resonate the way I want to, or make that $150,000 for this launch or a million dollars in revenue for this, that I know how to pivot because I've built that capacity. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, uh, you mentioned earlier this idea of being present and I wonder how you balance the ability to be present, but also keep in mind the goals that you have in the future. Because I think that we have to kind of, as I say, you know, when I, when I talk about surfing, it's you're living in the moment, but keeping your eyes on the horizon. And I wonder how you do that in your life. Like, how do you do that uh, when you know that you have goals in the future, but you know that being present is essential to accomplishing those goals in the future? Absolutely. So I'm a big believer that we need to hold our future lightly and to hold our present lightly, and to hold our past lightly. And I, I call it the baby bird phenomenon, that if you have all these goals and you're holding them too tight, you're going to smush the baby bird. And no one wants to smush a baby bird. That sounds terrible. It's messy. Uh, it's disappointing. <laughs> it's uh, sad. And th that idea that if you can hold it and nurture it and be able to pick it up and take a look at it, nurture it and put it down and also do the same thing with what you have to do now and the things that are still kind of lingering in the past. If you're able to hold those things lightly, we don't squash them because if you also don't hold it lightly enough or pay attention, they tend to fizzle out and die. So it's this ability to imagine that your visions both of present and future are hundreds of baby birds. It's the ability to manage each of those and understand that some won't get the attention if you don't pay attention to them. And some will need more attention and that's okay. And being aware of those needs. So it's this high level capacity to be the mama bird, so to speak, to your visions and future and also your present. And it's a very it's a delicate dance. And sometimes you realize that opportunities that you thought were right there, you didn't nurture well enough and they dissipate. And that's an unfortunate reality. But what I have found is that because my attention was on something else, I've nurtured that instead. And that whatever I am spending time on, there's going to be an equal and opposite reaction of what I'm not spending time on. 
So that uh, ability to hold things lightly, past, future, present, it goes so counter to so many of our cultural messages and cultural instincts to strive, to go aggressively after your goals, to hustle, to crush it, all these different sort of things that we hear. And I wonder how you build that uh, in the face of messages that conflict with that idea. I think that, you know, for any of us who've been in a relationship that didn't work out, it's not easy to let it go lightly. You always think to yourself, okay, what would I do differently? How would I change this? And I think it's only with distance and time that you kind of are able to let go lightly or, or hold on to it lightly. And, and I wonder, it, knowing all of that, uh, and knowing that you have all these cultural messages and this just wired behavior not to hold things lightly, how do you deal with that? Absolutely. I think that in general, we are so conditioned, you know, society does a very good job of conditioning us to do things a certain way. And what I found personally is that pushing led to a lot of pain and suffering for me and the people around me. And learning to hold things lightly came from for me came from the fact that life is, has to be held lightly because it's so tenuous. And I always use the example of you can have all these goals and visions and you can be crushing it and hustling and you can get hit by a bus. You can't control that. You, you can't control being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the first time I was aware of that was when I found out you're more likely to die in an accident with a deer than in a plane crash in an accident <laughs> driving a car, like with a deer, like that's more statistically likely. And I think when I was about 11, that just blew my mind when I heard that because we think, oh yes, airplane travel, it's, it's scary. And you're in this big plane, you're in a hurtling sky beast at some sort of crazy altitude, throwing yourself through this, through time and space at a rate we're really not supposed to do as like naturally as humans. And then you can go driving on a mountain road and hit a deer and everything's over, right? Like the fact that we can do both of those and that that is more likely to kill you than hurtling in a, <laughs> in a metal box really hit me. Um, and I always use that example because it really is the best early example I have. And then when I was 16, I was supposed to graduate early from high school. I had been hustling and crushing it and really working really hard and taking eight classes a day, meaning I was in class from 7.30 to 3 with no lunch break. I had five minutes to eat my lunch between whatever periods I wanted to do so that I could get out of high school early because I was so smart and so talented and I wanted to go to college early. And then I got smacked in the face with a melanoma diagnosis at the age of 16 and my world collapsed. Like everything just fell apart because when you're 16, you assume you're going to be fine. And then it was made very clear to me by my doctors that this could come back that it was really aggressive. They had seen me six months before and I didn't have a mole and they saw me six months later and I had a mole deep enough. They were worried about it and had to do multiple extractions. And I had to go to daily blood tests for a while, then weekly. And I found this notion about the fact that I could get hit by, I could hit a deer and that could kill me and end everything like actually I had a deer, I had a deer incident and it was cancer on my body. And it was like, well, okay, so what, what now instead? And I found this need to slow down because now I couldn't 
I knew I couldn't make it through at the pace I was to graduate early, right? Quote unquote on time, since that was the trajectory I was on. And then I had to really slow down because I had to take a certain amount of credits to be considered in school. And I had to slow down again because I was just too tired from running from doctor's appointment to doctor's appointment. And it really forced me to go, okay, well, fine. If I, if I can't control my future, what can I control is myself in my present and that's it. Hmm. Wow. Uh, so, you know, when you get something like a, a diagnosis, uh, or, or something really terrible happens. I think for most of us, uh, in the moment, we tend to get really absorbed in the thing, and it just feels all-encompassing. I remember one of my mentors said, to, "You know, when something bad is happening to you, he said it's the worst thing in the world because it's happening to you." And it, when you're completely consumed by grief or shit or whatever it is, when you're going through something difficult, how do you find the the, the sort of ability to look and, and see, you know, a, a brighter future or, or see light at the end of the tunnel in that situation? Or how did you, in your situation, like, did you, were you able to see, okay, there is a light at the end of the tunnel uh, in this situation? That's not an oncoming train. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I would say that at 16, I wasn't very good at it. I think I I viewed it as the oncoming train for a long time. I really took it on as a thing that was going to derail me forever. Um, But, you know, forever is a long time. And the next year happened. And I had to reapply for college because I had already done that. I, I was already through that process once. And so I had to do it all over again because I had to withdraw all my applications. Um, and there wasn't a way to defer a year. They just didn't, that was just not where I was applying at least. And it, it became clear that I didn't really have a choice, but to pay attention to the fact that, okay, I have a present and I probably have a future and I probably need to hold both now and move. And it, it wasn't comfortable or fun <laughs> or easy. It, it was all encompassing. It, it really felt like a huge portion of me had disappeared, even though it was just a pork chop size hunk of flesh off my back. It, it felt like this whole piece of me had dissipated into the ether. And what I found eventually through therapy (laughs) and uh, going to college was that it wasn't forever and it didn't have to be forever. And I didn't have to treat it or carry it as this, this burden that I had been gifted or cursed with. It just simply was a thing. It was a blip on the story of where I was and I could either treat it like it was all encompassing and continue to feel a lot of grief around it. Or I could hold it lightly and go, this is a thing that happened. And I think that the ability to hold it lightly, that like that changed for me in college. I, I studied, of all things, my undergrad major was Tibetan philosophy. How esoteric is that? And I went to Smith College, so I didn't even go to a place where that would, it's not like I went to Naropa and Boulder, right? Like I went to a <laughs> Seven Sisters school where people study really serious things. And here I am studying this really serious thing where all I do is argue whether emptiness exists or not. And I found myself realizing I wouldn't have called myself a Buddhist at the time. I don't even know if I would call myself now. I would say I have Buddhist 
or Buddhist practices. <laughs> I'm a Buddhist, um, but I found that this capacity to look at things from multiple angles that I learned by studying Tibetan philosophy and looking at the fact that they were arguing over such minute details as whether a table has tableness intrinsically or whether it lacks all tableness, which, or everything else lacks all tableness, which makes it table, or whether it just doesn't even exist as a table. Like the fact that there were entire bodies of work about that made me realize that we can talk about all these things and hold all these things lightly and that ultimately they're all just things that happen to us. They are not us. And realizing that, that like the cancer was not me, but it was of me. Right. And that the piece of flesh they took out of me was not me, but it was a piece of me. And the piece, it kind of took the blip it created in my life this whole year that really was a terrible year um, was also not of me. It was just a piece of my fabric, so to speak. And that ability to kind of back up and look at that from afar really helped because being up close and staring at it in the face wasn't helping anymore. It wasn't productive. It wasn't nourishing. It wasn't any of those things that coaches tell you your life should look like. And I didn't have a coach back then. I was just, it didn't feel good. I was just spending all this time being in the inertia of I had been sick and my life was derailed. And I got kind of bored with listening to that story. And mm, wow. that made me step back and go, well, how, what story can I have instead? Yeah. So what was the story that you chose instead? Um, a lot of drugs and alcohol for a while, to be honest. <laughs> it's the, well, that <laughs> didn't kill me. That. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, cancer didn't kill me. What can I do to kill me? Um, I did that for a long time and I did it hard and fast and fun and furious and found very quickly that that was a way to hold all sorts of things lightly. Um, but not really my future goals. I basically ignored them. And I, I found that I lived in Cambodia for a while. That's I dropped out of college because once again, I had taken extra credits. It's the same story. And I was ahead of the curve and, Oh, I need, I had an extra semester that I didn't have to spend in school because I had taken extra credits. So I moved to Cambodia and drank a lot and partied really hard and did all sorts of things that your mom tells you not to do. Had a motorcycle and I lived pretty hard and fast and it was a really great experience because it was a reckoning. It was like, Hey, you know, this could actually kill you. And I don't think I realized it right then and there per se, but I started getting the whiffs of this could kill you. And I came back to school finished and then realized there was a really big world out there that I was missing by keeping my head down and underneath a lot of liquor. And I, st I mean, I, I still drink on occasion and I still have consumed alcohol. It's not, my, my story doesn't include going sober, but what the, the dangerous behaviors started to shift and I decided, okay, well, I can go to grad school. I can get a job. I did both. And I found myself figuring out that there was a lot of things that people weren't talking about and a lot of things that people weren't doing the way that could be done. Or I saw, I started seeing a lot of systematic holes that caused a lot of pain and suffering in a lot of different industries. And I went, ah, that's where I want to go. I want to 
start looking at these systems of brokenness in society and in global development and in how we connect as humans and started realizing there was a lot of similarities. And a lot of those similarities then led me back to Tibetan philosophy. And at the, at the core of all of it emerged, and this is so, this sounds so trite, but it is so true. Like at the core of all of it was compassion and the ability to hold compassion for almost all things and people and ideas and ways of being and understand that I had to have compassion for the me who partied really hard in Cambodia. I had to have compassion for my friend who was doing heroin in Cambodia and stole my passport when I got in a motorcycle accident so she could extricate money for me from me. I had to hold compassion for the, oh, woe is me wallowing McKenna who had melanoma. I, I had to hold compassion for all of these people and these things that were occurring. And that was kind of like my un, uncovering of, oh, there's, there's a there there. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm, wow. So walk me through leaving the tech job to what you're up to now. <laughs> what happened in between and how did you get to this point? Because clearly a lot of things have happened just based on everything you've told me so far. Okay. So I left my tech job because I was engaged to a captain in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, actually. And we, she was getting restationed to... Georgia, not the state, not the country, even though it felt like a different country at the time. I had spent my whole life um, in very in bastion pockets of liberality. So moving to Macon, Georgia was really, really different. And I moved there under quite a bit of duress and found myself with the lucky opportunity to teach at the three local colleges and universities in town because I had a master's degree in free time. And uh, I, I could speak well enough to command a classroom and they needed people with my skill set. So business and development economics and then the kind of critical thinking classes that first years get taught at universities like this. And so I had this really grand luck to fall into that role at a very young age. While most of my friends were finishing their PhDs and struggling to find jobs, I was working seven to 10 classes a semester at three universities, making somewhat decent money when you have that many classes and getting to teach while with just my master's degree, which I felt really, really blessed to do. And I was offered a tenure track job at one of the schools who they were going to put me through my PhD and um, on campus, and they were going to, I would be starting tenure track, and I would have gone through this whole process, and I would have been eligible once I had my PhD to be, to sit before the board. And the same day I got that offer, my then wife um, was told we were moving again. And everything I had just spent two years hustling for was taken away from me. I had a choice. I could either take the job or keep my relationship and move. And at the time, her career felt like the really solid one. And so I upped myself and moved. And it was definitely a difficult decision. We were moving from Georgia to Texas. Just what I needed and wanted was to be moving from Macon, Georgia to San Antonio, Texas. And I just really wanted to be back in Colorado, I'll be honest. And within a year, she actually got force reduced out of the Air Force. Um, they did a 10% force reduction of her year, blah de blah galapada machine of government, and she got let go. And during that time, I had started building my first adult business. I had had other businesses growing up, but it was the first business that I had run as an adult. And 
I found myself at this impasse of, could I make this work? She just lost her job. We had a small severance. We had about six months of on-ramp of funds. Can I make this work well enough? And I decided to jump whole hog into it and really throw myself into being an entrepreneur and give that a shot after I had been uh, doing a lot of different things for that year in Texas. I had been working as a freelancer. I had been a birth doula, which was great. I saw dozens of women give birth and I was there to be their support system. I worked on tons of really great websites as a UX designer. I did all sorts of really cool things. And now I, I actually had to like settle down and get a thing going that worked and was consistent. And so that set me on a very rapid trajectory of building a path to entrepreneurship again. And it was almost out of necessity because the idea at that point of going back to an office job was borderline terrifying. And I had kind of reached the pinnacle of what I thought I would reach in my life. One of my main goals was to, my main goals in life were to have children, get married and be a professor. Well, by the time I was 27, I had done two of those three and I was not ready to have kids. So I was like, crud, what do I do now? And so that sent me on this, like, okay, well, now I have to completely adjust my perception of what's possible in my life because I'd already done everything but the kid. Like, literally, my bucket list, there was, like, 30 things on it, was complete. And I was going, okay, hold life lightly. <laughs> um, you've already done all these things. Good job. Wait, way to set good intentions and follow through. Now what? And having some more freedom and doing something that was really 100% on my terms and as much as any business is 100% on your terms, you're still beholden to your clients and such and things. But it, that really sent me on a path of, oh, this is what's possible. And I fell into coaching because it was the only place I could imagine taking my skill set and knowledge of business, my skill set and knowledge of teaching, and the skill set of holding space and being a support system that I was as a doula and put them in one place. So I went to Kaizen Muse Creativity Coaching. I went through their program and was opened up to this whole notion of coaching didn't have to be pushy. It could be collaborative and co-creative and I went, that's what I want to do. And so I did that for a while. And then my business evolved because I finally, someone told me, you know, you really should be doing business consulting. You've run a lot of businesses. You've worked in a lot of businesses. You've managed online advertising funnels. You know, kind of all those things that people talk about having done, you've done in a big way. Why don't you add that to your repertoire? And so I decided to kind of own that and move with that and that set me on this trajectory of doing things my way and building businesses my way. And that was the first. Wow. Okay. So I think the thing that struck me most uh, about everything that you just said was that ability to recognize uh, how all these sort of disparate things had a common through line and intersected. And I wonder how people do that in your own, their own lives. Like, how do you recognize the through line and how do you find the dots that connect um, from the various things that you've done throughout your life? 
That's a really good question. I don't know if I could do it again. I think so much of it was circumstantial. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, I was in a rock and a hard place. It was either get a job, which at the time looked like getting a job with a, you know, a, a company in San Antonio or figure it out. And I, I think I was really lucky that I had a really great mentor. And I was really lucky that I was willing to see the possibility. I don't really know if I have some magic formula on how to find those through lines. I, I needed help. And I had help. And I was really blessed to have help that could see the magic that I could bring to the table. I didn't really do it on my own. Hmm. Well, one, one, I appreciate that. I think that, uh, you know, we have this almost superhuman pressure in our culture to go out and do things on our own and look like we're unstoppable. I, I remember, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was having a, a conversation with my friend, Mike, and my younger sister had to help me out with something. And he said, I, I think you see this situation as a failure because of the fact that your sister helped you with this. He said, but the reality is nobody gets anything done without other people's help. And he said, often it's just ego that prevents us from asking for help. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's something I'm still struggling with sometimes. I, I've, I'm an only child who's done a lot of like done it herself and has really put on those boots and lifted herself up by her bootstraps. And still at the end of the day, I'm constantly realizing I do need other people to help me. Yeah. Okay. So there's something that actually surprisingly hasn't come up in all, our, all of our conversation, which was actually the thing that made me say yes. And that was the South of France and cooking. Like, where does that all fit into all of it? That was what got my attention. And I'm thinking to myself, 37 minutes in, we haven't quite gotten there yet. So where does that fit into all of this? Oh my goodness. Yes. Um, so that's another one of my businesses. So I, I run four That's and I run four completely separate businesses. Um, and so I, I stumbled upon this article in the New York Times on November 13th, 2015, called The House That Julia Built. And it was a real estate article about La Pichune, which was Julia Child's former summer home in the south of France that she built on her collaborator for mastering the art of French cooking, cooking's estate, Simone Beck. And she built this little cottage and it was on the market. And this was about three years into, no, two years into running my coaching business full time. I had broken the mythical six figure mark and I was booked out and everything was marvelous and I was miserable because I had beholden myself to a desk and a computer. It just wasn't a desk in an office. It was a desk anywhere I could find a desk, which suddenly felt less like freedom than going home at the end of the day. I felt like I was working all the time with, I mean, I was making good money, right? But I didn't even have time to enjoy it. I was just working all the time. And so I had put my coaching business to rest for the winter. And I had decided to get a job as a ski instructor at $11 an hour plus tips at the ski resort that I had grown up at because I had a place to live and that would cover my baseline expenses and I had savings and I was going to keep two of my favorite clients and it was going to be fine. So I saw this article and I thought to myself, well, that would be cool to own her house. Don't know what I would do with it. That would be neat. And I sent 
an email BCC'd to every investor and food and wine person I knew, which was about a dozen. And just with the headline that said, wouldn't it be cool to own Julia Child's house? Question mark with a link to the article. And I thought really nothing of it. I got in my car. I was up in the mountains um, in Vail and I was going down to Boulder to visit my family. And I, I realized in this process of sending the email, I was pretty sure the house was already sold uh, because the listing link was dead. It, like it was clearly had been there and I couldn't find it anywhere on the website. So I'd gotten a couple responses back and I was driving down the mountain and I had been asked for a couple business plans. And then on the radio, NPR did a breaking news. And you know when NPR says breaking news, it actually means breaking. It's not like the 24-hour news cycle of, say, a cable news network going, breaking news, we've heard this every hour for the past 30 hours. You know it means business, <laughs> right? Like, there's a difference. More, more like the past 200 right, days. Right, exactly. Breaking yeah. news. Someone did something stupid again. That's the same stupid thing they did two weeks ago. So when NPR yeah. says breaking news, you know it's breaking news. And... Breaking news on November 13th of 2015 was the Bataclan attacks in Paris. The big shooting, the big kahuna. Uh -huh. And something in me clicked and went, well, now you have to buy that house. And I had this vision that it could be a center in France to bring disparate people together over food, put a bunch of strangers and lodge, put them up together in this tiny house and teach them how to cook. And I wasn't a chef, but I was a very adept home cook. And I didn't really know how to do it. I just knew I wanted to. And so I reached out to the real estate agent. Some of the investors had written back and said, that would be cool. Get, send me a business plan. So I reached out to the real estate agent. They told me the house had stole, sold. So I was correct in that thought process. And then I checked it early, early, early on Monday morning. It was back up. And so I called. And they told me it was back on the market, but there were two people in front of me, at least, if not more. They, but they'd only had about a dozen inquiries, which if you think about it, New York Times article, yada, yada, there should have been thousands. Turns out that the link from the New York Times took you to a main site and then you had to follow another link, which I had followed kind of intuitively or just doing my due diligence. And most people hadn't. And I know that most people hadn't because I received over a few hundred emails at this point of people who said they almost bought the house. And my real estate agent, the only way you could have almost bought the house is through him because that's how France works. You can only buy through that real estate agent. And it's not like mm -hmm. a multi-listing service situation that you could have called your agent. You have to call that one. And He's like, yeah, no, he still only had about a dozen inquiries. So that's really interesting. That's a, that's a, there's a lesson in there. <laughs> Almost really doesn't count. Um, and so I, I did it. And I bought the house with the help of investors and opened a recipe-free cooking school in the Queen of Recipes house in the south of France. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a place that I want to, um, that's amazing. That is, that is incredible. Uh, I wonder 
what has been the experience for people who have come to the house uh, in terms of how their lives have changed afterwards? Not just in terms of learning how to cook, but what have been the unexpected byproducts of this? Absolutely. Them? So people always joke that when they come, a lot of people will come here and they come here expecting it to be this one thing. And then they leave going, oh yeah, this is not just a cooking school. And I said, of course it's not. It's run by a leadership coach. It wouldn't just be a cooking school. That would be silly. Um, but I think that what it does for most people is it shows that they know a lot more about their own tastes than they realize. It's a great metaphor. Recipes are a great metaphor for, say, leadership books or business strategy guides. You might want part of it, but you don't necessarily want all of it because it's not necessarily going to appeal to you slash your audience, right? You are the audience if you're making a meal or the people you're serving it to. So the really interesting thing about a recipe is it's the expression of one person's taste buds, maybe with a couple extra people tasting, right? But not really more than three. And by convincing people that they know their taste buds the best, something magic unlocks for people. Because the reality is a lot of people hate cooking because recipes often don't work. And that's because you can't account for all the factors in a recipe unless you're already a pretty adept cook. Medium high on my stove is going to be different than medium high on yours. And if the recipe says medium high and you don't know any better and you're just sitting there cooking something on medium high, that might be a disaster or it might take five hours instead of an hour. (laughs) There's, There's so many variables that can go wrong. So by convincing people that they actually have the magic of their own tastes locked in their brain and in their mouths, People start to react differently and talk differently and do things at home differently. And my favorite story, which is related to cooking, was we had a couple who came. They'd been married for 60 years, six zero, and he had never cooked for his wife because he didn't believe he could. And within the week, he went through the whole entire cooking experience. And I got an email about two weeks later from his wife. And she said, he made me an omelet this morning. (laughs) 60 years. (laughs) And I think like the, the little things like that all the way up to the big things of people who've literally never boiled an egg or had an exquisite mother who was an exquisite chef in the kitchen at home. And they were terrified of touching it or because they weren't allowed to touch it because they would quote unquote, screw it up. There's a lot of belief systems Uh in cooking. A lot of people hate cooking who shouldn't hate cooking. I say that because, you know, people who love meditation hate cooking. Cooking can be a meditation. It also nourishes your body. It doesn't have to be viewed as a chore. We have all this conditioning around it being a chore. And I think it's in essence because of recipes a lot of times because people are producing something that someone else says they should produce. And that never creates good results for anyone. Across Maybe you can decode this mystery for me that I have been trying to decode for the better part of uh, 38 years. So actually not 38 years because there was a period of about 10 or 15 where I didn't really give a shit because my mom fed me and I didn't care. But then I moved out and I realized my mom is an amazing cook. And I realized there's not a recipe to be found anywhere in our house. Like you literally could sit next to my mom on the stove, mimic everything she does, and your food will not turn out as good as hers. And I'm wondering if maybe you have an answer for me in terms of what I could do to to remedy this situation. Taste the food more often. Most of us don't taste while we're cooking enough. 
And if you watch really adept chefs, they're tasting constantly. In fact, it's one of the first things they teach you in culinary school is to have a tasting spoon station where you have your tasting spoon and a bucket of water so you can keep tasting without having to get new spoons. So you can dip it in the water and taste and dip it in the water and taste. And one of my mentor chefs in culinary school said, if you weren't tasting at least once every five to 10 minutes, you weren't tasting enough. So much can change. So oftentimes the difference between a great cook and a decent cook is tasting and adjusting as you go. Wow. Uh, this has been really, really amazing. I'd like, now I kind of want to come to your cooking school. <laughs> we would love to have you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that sounds like an experience. I, I'm going to have to add that to my bucket list. Uh, I can see now why Paige referred you. This has been really, really phenomenal. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. I knew this was coming and I still was sitting on an answer. I, I, it's not, not easy to answer that one. <sighs> I think the biggest thing that makes someone unmistakable is a trust in themselves. And I think that's something we can build over time. And I think that you have to have an unshakable trust that even if things don't work out the way you want them to, they'll work out the way they can because none of us work in silos. I think that's the thing that a lot of people forget is that even if you work in your own business, you have to manage the energy and the connection points of every single person you might come into contact with. And you need them to say yes, as much as you need to say yes. And that willingness to understand that even if someone says no, that someone else might say yes, makes being a creative in a often boxed in world much easier to manage. Well, I think that makes a really fitting and poetic end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? Well, let's see. Uh, <laughs> which of the many? I'm just kidding. Uh, the best place would be at yourleadershiprecipe.com or lapeach, L-A-P-E-E-T-C-H.com. And that's where the cooking school lives. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.